From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Meeting in Germany, G7 leaders have pledged deep cuts in global warming gases, and U.N. negotiators have been crafting a new climate treaty. But they don't factor in the thawing of the frozen earth that could cook the planet. Our current estimate is that there's about 1,500 billion tons of carbon in permafrost. If all of the carbon and permafrost was released into the atmosphere, at that point, this is not going to be a habitable planet for humans. We might need a new ice age to save us. Also, a new view of the great conservationist John Muir as a young Rube Goldberg, forever inventing things. They were inventions like clocks and a one alarm clock that was rigged up to a device that would raise the top half of his bed so it kind of threw him out of bed, if you can imagine that. We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The thawing of the permafrost in the far north is part of growing irreversible feedbacks from the poles to Mount Everest, and we are reaching thresholds where only a new ice age reverses impacts. That's the word at the recent round of U.N. climate negotiations in Bonn from scientists whose alarming projections show we are at risk of slipping into runaway global warming. In a moment, we'll have more on the negotiations and the G7 pledges to stem greenhouse gas emissions. But first, we turn to scientist Sue Natale of the Woods Hole Research Center in Massachusetts, who told negotiators about the new data and projections of what science calls permafrost carbon feedback. She joins us on the line now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So first of all, what's permafrost? Permafrost is perennially frozen ground. It's ground that remains frozen for two or more consecutive years. In some areas, permafrost has been frozen for up to 40,000 years. Permafrost can comprise any material that's in the ground that's below zero degrees Celsius. So it can contain rocks, frozen soil, organic material, so that you can find whole plant parts or trees or tree roots. You can find frozen bones. What happens when permafrost starts to thaw? So one of the things that happens when permafrost thaws is you can get ground collapse or ground subsidence. And the reason for that is because permafrost contains ice. When the ice melts, the ground can collapse. The other thing that can happen is if permafrost completely thaws so that you get a breach, total breach in the permafrost layer, you can get drainage of groundwater. And this could lead to drying. One of the things that we're seeing in boreal and Arctic regions is an increase in fire. If the soil dries, this may further amplify this increased fire frequency. So how does permafrost affect the global climate? Permafrost thaw affects global climate because there's currently a vast storage of carbon that's frozen in permafrost. So our current estimate is that there's about 1,500 billion tons of carbon in permafrost. That carbon is frozen. It's in the form of organic matter. So when the permafrost thaws, microbes decompose or eat that organic matter. And just as we respire carbon dioxide, so do microbes. So microbes release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and they also release methane. And methane is important because it's a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So why is it thawing? Permafrost is thawing as a result of climate change. In the Arctic, the air temperatures are warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet, and this is projected to continue into the coming decades and centuries. 
How much permafrost is there? Permafrost regions comprise about 25% of the Northern Hemisphere land area. And how much of it do we expect to lose? Our current projections are that we can expect to see a 30 to 70% decline in near-surface permafrost. And that range, in large part, is driven by our different emission scenarios. So under low emissions, we can expect about a 30% decline in permafrost, but under our current emission scenarios, up to 70%. What are we talking about in terms of carbon winding up in the atmosphere here? How might this affect the whole planet? Right. So if 70% of the permafrost thaws, our current estimate is that by the end of this century, we can expect to lose 130 to 160 billion tons of carbon from permafrost as a result of thaw. So to put that in perspective, in 2013, the United States emitted 1.4 billion tons of carbon from fossil fuel combustion and cement production. Greenhouse gas release from permafrost regions is on par with emissions from the United States. So how does the carbon in the permafrost compare to other sources, other places where carbon is on the planet? The amount of carbon in permafrost is almost twice as much carbon as is currently contained in the atmosphere. There's three times more carbon stored in permafrost than is contained in the world's forest biomass on a global scale. And the amount of carbon in permafrost is on par with our current estimates of fossil fuel reserves. And the thing that I think is important about these numbers is that when we think about the world's forest and deforestation, in theory, we can control deforestation and land use change. We can control our fossil fuel emissions. But once permafrost starts to thaw, we cannot control how much carbon dioxide and methane is released by microbes into the atmosphere from thawing permafrost. How much is the release of carbon from permafrost factored into the current climate negotiations? Permafrost carbon emissions were not included in the last IPCC report, but scientists are working to incorporate permafrost carbon release into Earth system models so that our next climate projections can include this additional carbon loss as a result of permafrost thaw. So you're not a climate modeler, Dr. Natale, but if you factor in permafrost thaw to climate projections, how does that change things, do you think? Well, international negotiators had set two degrees Celsius as an upper limit, an acceptable level of climate change. To remain below the two degrees Celsius target, our total emissions are limited to 790 gigatons, or billion tons of carbon. We've already released about 500. So that leaves us a little under 300 billion tons. We can expect 150 of that to be taken up as a result of permafrost thaw. So this makes it very challenging for us to stay below this two degrees Celsius. Even under our lowest emission scenario, we're pretty close to 2.2 degrees Celsius. We're about a quarter of a degree away from that. Factoring in permafrost emissions is extremely urgent. And what this means is this puts greater urgency on reducing our fossil fuel emissions. So, all right, I'm sitting down. You can tell me, if we get all the carbon in the permafrost into the atmosphere, how warm is our planet? Do we know? Not all of the carbon that's in permafrost will be released. Our current expectation is about 10 to 15% of that carbon will be released into the atmosphere. That said, if all of the carbon in permafrost was released, at that point, I, this is not going to be a habitable planet for humans. Sue Natale is a permafrost expert with the Woods Hole Research Center and co-author of a paper recently published in Nature. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Sue. Thank you so much for having me. 
There's more information about threats related to the thawing permafrost on our website, LOE.org, including a link to this paper in the journal Nature. Sunatali spoke in bond to U.N. negotiators working to streamline a new binding climate treaty for delegates to discuss and, with luck, adopt in Paris next fall. The session coincided with the G7 nations meeting further south in Germany, where leaders, including those from historically reluctant Japan and Canada, agreed to call for a full decarbonization of the world's economy by 2100. Climate policy expert Jennifer Morgan of the World Resources Institute was in Germany for both sessions, and we asked her to explain these developments. The G7 has decided that there should be a decarbonization of the global economy over the course of this century, which basically means that you need to phase out fossil fuels in the coming decades. And they coupled that with a global emission reduction target that they would do their part, but they noted it needs to be global. And also, they put out what they see as key priorities for the Paris Agreement and some important finance initiatives for developing countries as well. So how big a deal is this action by the G7? I think the G7 signal that we need to decarbonize the world's economy in the coming decades is very significant. I think it caught many by surprise, including myself, that they were able to pull this off. And I think it comes from a number of things. I think, number one, that Chancellor Merkel really took this on. She put the toughest issues on the G7 agenda, and she's personally committed. I think that she and President Obama worked very closely together with President Hollande. So you had a group of countries that do understand the risks and the need to send this kind of signal to investors around the world. And Japan and Canada, I think in the end, the support around the world is growing and nobody wants to be isolated, especially when you're in the club of the G7. So it was a number of different factors that came together to make this happen. And now we need them to follow up on it. So over the years, from time to time, you've worked with the German government, including the Chancellor Angela Merkel. How surprised were you that she decided to take this on? You know, Chancellor Merkel has been a bit absent on the international climate stage for the last number of years. And I think this was her opportunity to get reengaged. I wasn't surprised that she took it on. And when she did, I kind of had this sense of confidence that it was all going to work out okay because she is such an extremely committed scientist on all of this. And her negotiating skills clearly are quite good. So I guess I would just say that I'm just so pleased that she took the risk. She was the president of the first conference of the parties 20 years ago, and now she had the opportunity again, you know, 20 years later to make a difference. So we need her to stay engaged up until the last hours of Paris. By the way, in other European news, Norway has just divested its $890 billion sovereign wealth, its pension fund, from coal. That's nearly a trillion dollars. What do you make of that? I think that that is just a signal of what today is happening that is along that global decarbonization of the world's economy. It signals to me that coal is no longer a viable investment and certainly is something that should be removed from the portfolios of investors around the world. Of course, Norway makes a lot of its money from its own state oil company, Stott Oil. It sure does. But I think this commitment was a, a very bold political statement by Norway and did have economic consequences. I mean, they're going to have to change their portfolio, but it's step number one. 
Now, at the same time, one of the preliminary meetings for the November-December big deal in Paris has been going on in Bonn, somewhat technical set of meetings. How have they been going? You know, they've been pretty onerous, pretty slow. They're going through 90 pages of negotiating text and trying to make it coherent, get rid of brackets and various options, and they're doing that in large drafting groups. So it's it's slow, kind of like riding through mud a bit, I think. <laughs> By this time now, as part of the UN process, countries were supposed to say what their plans are to meet their own national targets. Which countries' plans particularly have impressed you so far? Well, I... I have to say, and it's not just because it's my home country, I think the U.S. plan is pretty impressive. It has that 80% long-term target, so not far off from what the G7 is advocating for. And it uses all the levers that the administrative executive branch has to reduce emissions in all the key sectors, uh, power sector, transport, make our appliances more efficient. So that's one that I think is pretty impressive. You know, the other one I think is really interesting is the country of Gabon that came out early, the first African country that tabled its national plan, and it focuses more on renewables and efficiency, but I think is really important to see that all countries are figuring out what they can do to help save the planet from global warming. Now, we just spoke with scientist Susan Natale about the threat of thawing permafrost to our climate. What do you make of the fact that at least up till now, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a group of scientists, hasn't considered the permafrost issue in its predictions about climate change. I find that really surprising. I would hope that in the next report that the findings of this research are included. They are stunning, they are shocking, and they have a big impact on you know what kind of response and the rate of change that countries need to put in place to avoid this type of impact. I think it also puts even more focus on getting those other emissions cut absolutely as quickly as possible, but then also, you know, getting societies ready for some of these impacts. And that's a big issue in the climate negotiations from the poorest countries and the most vulnerable, that they want to see a focus on loss and damage which means, you know, what they lose and get damaged from the impacts of climate change and on adaptation, because they need to be able to adapt to sea level rise and and these types of impacts as best as they can. Jennifer, um, before you go, tell me, how are you feeling now about the progress of negotiations towards getting a major deal in Paris in the fall, this G7 statement, these meetings in Bonn, um, the divestiture movement? I mean, I feel like we are making good progress. I feel like there are signals coming out from around the world that they think this is the moment to be on the right side of history on this issue, whether it be this Norwegian commitment, whether it be the G7 commitment. And now the time is ripe for the negotiations to reflect that to show the urgency throughout the negotiations and come out with something in Paris that really is a a turning point and sends those clear signals, not just from the G7, but from the whole world. Jennifer Morgan is the Global Director of the Climate Change Program at the World Resources Institute. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us once again. Thank you.
It's time now for Peter Dykstra to take us on a trip beyond the headlines. Peter is with the dailyclimate.org and environmental health news. That's ehn.org. And he joins us today from College Park, Maryland. Hi, Peter. What's up? Well, hi, Steve. Let's go north of the border for a little bit of a surreal twist on the tar sand saga. It's an ongoing gloves-off political brawl that's even drawn Tim Hortons Donuts, the iconic Canadian chain, into the fight over one of Canada's potentially most toxic exports. Well, I presume you mean the tar sands and not the coffee and donuts. Of course not. You don't mess with Tim's. With nearly 5,000 outlets all over Canada and the northern U.S., and for a time they even had one at the Canadian Forces Outpost in Kandahar, Afghanistan. Tim Horton was a hockey hero, elected to the Hall of Fame a few years after he died in a car accident in the 1970s. So uh, what's up with the late Mr. Horton's empire and the tar sands? Well, many of those Tim's outlets in Canada ran in-store video ads promoting Enbridge, the controversial tar sands pipeline company, but Tim Hortons dropped the ads after a huge backlash and social media campaign from Canadians who loved their Timbits. That's what Tim's calls the little bite-sized dough punched out of donut holes, but they don't love Dillbit, the diluted bitumen that flows in a tar sands pipeline. Get it? Timbits? Dillbit? Let's just keep going. Well, after all this, Tar Sands supporters cried foul, and pro-Tar Sands protests began at Tim's outlets in Alberta, Canada's oil capital. So it's on petrodollars versus donuts. Oh, Canada. Indeed. But let's move on to a potentially teachable moment in what's maybe an even more contentious issue. Last week, the EPA came out with a long-awaited report on the impacts of fracking on water supplies. And as you might expect, the report generated a lot of headlines. So let me read you a few headlines about whether or not EPA thinks fracking is a problem. Here's one. Fracking has not had a big effect on water supply. So fracking's not a big risk. But here's another headline. EPA finds drinking water vulnerable to fracking. So maybe fracking is a big risk. Another one, fracking study undercuts environmentalist call for more regulation. Take that, fracking opponents. I've got your study right here. Okay, Peter, so what did the EPA study actually find? I'm glad you asked that, Steve. You know, we call this segment Beyond the Headlines for a reason. You've got to read Beyond the Headlines. These three stories and many others really report the same thing. EPA says there's no current smoking gun evidence that fracking has had a big impact on drinking water supplies, but there's a significant risk that it could. Both fracking supporters and fracking opponents spun this study within an inch of its life. The reality is that it will likely change few opinions about fracking, but the most important takeaway here is read beyond the headlines and make up your own mind. That's always a good idea. Hey, let's go to the history calendar. What do you have this week? A little fire that became a big part of National Park's history. 1988 was a big drought year in much of the West, and on June 14th of that year, lightning set off a small fire near Yellowstone. Within a few weeks, a dozen more fires, fanned by fierce winds, merged into an inferno for America's greatest national park. Big parts of Yellowstone burned all summer, in part because the Park Service policy was to let wildfires burn out naturally with healthy ecological results. Yeah, but what played out on the nightly news were pictures of Yellowstone being destroyed forever, it seemed, while the Park Service looked like the Emperor Nero. Right, and that was unfair to the Park Service and to firefighters. From a tourism standpoint, Yellowstone was trashed for a few years. From an ecological standpoint, the fire was part of an essential, recurring process that renews wildlands. When you suppress fires artificially and deadwood and brush build up, you're only making the next fire worse. Yes, and Yellowstone has nicely recovered. 
Thanks, Peter Dykstra. Peter's with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and The Daily Climate. Talk to you next time. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. We humans like to think we're special, but as we learn more about other creatures, the difference between us and some of them becomes harder to pin down. For example, we know that prairie dogs have a surprisingly complex system of communication, and elephants mourn their dead. And as a team of scientists recently discovered, chimpanzees can cook. Well, sort of. To learn more about this primate talent and what it may tell us about our own evolution, we called up Felix Varnikin. Associate Professor of Psychology at Harvard, who conducted the study with his wife, Alexandra Rosati. Felix Varnikin, welcome to Living on Earth. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. So, first of all, what inspired you to do this experiment? The inspiration came from a really provocative hypothesis by uh, Professor Richard Wrangham, who is also at Harvard, and he has written several papers and a whole book, actually, that's called Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human, where he shows that uh, cooking is an important aspect of human evolution because we have these large brains that are metabolically or energetically very expensive. So we somehow have to find the energy to sustain them. And what he proposes is that cooked food will be digested by us more easily and we can gain more energy from it. And therefore, we have more energy available that we can use, for example, for sustaining these large brains. So this was the hypothesis that we started out with. And what my colleague Alexandra Rosati and I thought was that we can maybe add to this debate about when it was possible for humans to cook their food by studying chimpanzees. Well, so of all the primates that you could have chosen for the study, why did you pick chimps? So chimpanzees are interesting for studying human evolution because they're one of our closest evolutionary relatives. And so the logic is that because we are so closely related that whatever you find in both humans and chimpanzees probably existed already in the common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees uh, living five to seven million years ago. So this is why we studied uh, chimpanzees to see to what extent several of what we believe are critical capacities to cook food are already present in these chimpanzees as well. Well, I have to tell you, you know, there's been all this talk about how important it is to eat raw food. So by the way, I'm really grateful for your study because I can feel more comfortable eating cooked food now. <laughs> That's right. So, I mean, this is what I would highly recommend. Reading this book by Richard Wrangham is, is really quite amazing because here he detailed that there are no humans around that would survive on a purely raw, unprocessed food at all because um, we can't extract the energy that we need from it. And that is one major difference to chimpanzees who actually can. So, in other terms, we wouldn't be able to sustain on a chimpanzee diet on what chimpanzees in the wild eat on a regular basis. Thank heavens for that. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to try the chimp diet. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Professor, please walk us through your experiment. Yeah, so what we did is we actually had a whole series of studies to probe chimpanzees' abilities to cook food. And so 
what we started out with was asking, like, what are the kinds of things you have to be able to do in order to cook food? One thing is obviously you have to be motivated to do it. So we checked that chimpanzees actually prefer their food cooked. So what we did, we focused on white sweet potatoes because that is something that the chimpanzees that we tested in the sanctuary in Africa eat on a regular basis and they like it. But then we see if they like it even more when it's cooked. And we found, yes, that is the case. If you give them a choice to receive a slice of raw potato versus a slice of cooked potato, they prefer the cooked one. So that was our first experiment. And then the second issue is that for cooking, obviously, you need more patience because you could eat the raw version of the food immediately. In order to cook it, however, you have to wait some time. And so that was our second experiment. And we tested uh, whether chimpanzees, when they see that they would receive uh, cooked food, would wait even longer for that. And that was the case as well. And then when you think further, what else do you have to know and be able to do to cook food is that you have to somehow understand, at least on a practical level, that there is this kind of transformation from something raw into something cooked. And so what we did to test this is that we invented this magic cooking device. So it's just a bowl, basically. And we showed that when you put a raw slice of potato in it, close it with a lid, shake it, and open it again, it comes out cooked. We used a false bottom to do that. And the reason for doing that was that, first of all, it would have been a bit too dangerous for us to have an actual camping cooker or some other kind of thing in front of these chimpanzees. Imagine them uh, grabbing onto a gas tank. That would not be fun. So that was one reason, just practical. Uh, the other reason is that these chimpanzees may have seen humans using fire to cook food because they live at a sanctuary where they see humans all the time. And so because we're interested in their spontaneous ability to make these inferences, we presented them with this completely novel device that they had never seen before. And so if chimpanzees understand that, it seems like their understanding goes deeper than just some observation of what they have seen before. So they understood that this was a cooking device, it sounds like. That's right. So what they saw was us putting a slice of potato in, and then it comes out cooked. And within minutes within a single session when we gave them the choice to receive food after it had been placed and manipulated with this cooking device versus a control device that was basically a broken cooker that was something that did not change the food that you put into it they would reliably point to the cooking device and wanted to receive the food from the cooking device over this control device now professor i have to ask you at this point why not just use a microwave uh, for this cooking experiment. I mean, chimps uh, reliably can be trained to push a single button. The simple issue with this is that there's no electricity where we ran our experiments. <laughs> so putting up a microwave would have been a little bit of a problem. And it also really doesn't fit our luggage that we have to haul <laughs> over to Africa uh, every summer here from, from Cambridge. But that is basically what it is. And that would be a really cool study, I agree, to see whether they would do that. I think they would succeed at it, like you say. I think one important aspect is the question to what extent they need to be trained to do it or they just can figure it out by themselves. But what was so striking to us was that these chimpanzees picked up on these things so quickly. So we really didn't train them to do this kind of stuff. We gave the chimpanzees raw slices of potato 
and then offered them to put it into this cooking device or this control device or just eat it. And then to our amazement, several of the chimpanzees would actually place the food into this cooking device. We would shake it, open it, and then they would receive a cooked version of it. And that was really surprising to us because um, chimpanzees usually eat what they can get. I mean, it's, it requires a lot of what is called inhibitory control to resist the temptation to just eat something that you hold in your hands, but place it into something so that it turns into something even better. So what do you think chimps being able to cook tells us about us? So I think what it tells us is that, at least in principle, our human ancestors possessed several of the abilities that are necessary to cook food. Obviously, chimpanzees do not have all the abilities that are necessary because chimpanzees in the wild do not actually cook food. So that leads to the question, what are the other things that are necessary? And so uh, one important thing is the control of fire, that you have to find some way of, of using that. And chimpanzees do not do that, at least not in the wild. And so this may have been one reason why we see this only in the human lineage and not in, in chimpanzees that cooking. Uh, but another reason is maybe more social. Chimpanzees are very competitive over food. And so if you are in a group of individuals competing over food, the best choice for you may be to just eat whatever you have, right? Because that lowers the risk of, of losing it. For humans to, early humans also to cook, it may be required that they were more trusting towards each other and respecting each other's ownership over food. So your study suggests that we humans aren't all that different from our close relatives. Yeah, so what is really striking when you look at this, at the whole field of compare, what is called comparative psychology, you find that there are so many things that previously thought to be unique to humans that have at least really striking precursors in, in chimpanzees. So I think what is apparent on the one hand is obviously we are really, really different. But then there are so many components that you see already in chimpanzees that indicate to us that maybe it required putting all these components together that made us human rather than that there's this one single magic thing that um, is different between humans and, and chimpanzees that explains all the various differences that we see. Felix Voronikin is a, an associate professor of psychology at Harvard University. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Yeah, thanks. It may not be a surprise that our close primate relatives seem to have cognitive responses and understanding that is parallel to ours. But as Michael Stein explains in today's Bird Note, we seem to be on many of the same pages with our feathered friends, at least when it comes to song. Scientists at Emory University have taken a novel approach to a question that's hung in the air for millennia. How are music and birdsong related? The new approach puts the question this way. Looking at what happens in the brain, does a bird experience a song from its own species the way we experience man-made music? Brain imaging studies have shown that hearing enjoyable music lights up what's called the mesolimbic reward pathway in the human brain. 
The study reveals a very similar pattern in the sparrow's brain. Female white-throated sparrows, hormonally charged for breeding season, were played songs of male white-throated sparrows. Just as in humans, the mesolimbic reward pathway lit up. You might say the sparrows were, at the neural level, turned on by the songs of a potential mate. Not so with male sparrows, though. Hearing the song of another male triggered the part of the brain similar to the one that lights up when humans hear horror film music. For a male sparrow, when he hears the song of a potential breeding rival, there's a lot at stake. I'm Michael Stein. You can find pictures if you hop on over to our website, loe.org. Coming up, the story of naturalist and Sierra Club founder John Muir set to music. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Of all the figures who helped shape an early appreciation for the American landscape, John Muir is among the most iconic. Muir's mission in life was the protection of wilderness, and the founder of the Sierra Club is credited with inspiring President Theodore Roosevelt during a camping trip in Yosemite to start the national park system. Today, the landscape of the country shows Muir's legacy with the John Muir hiking trail, Muir Glacier, Mount Muir, Muir Woods, and the June 13th dedication of new lands at Muir Park, including the Muir Homestead in Wisconsin, provides the quartet chance the occasion to celebrate John Muir in music. Living on Earth's Helen Palmer prepared this report. My ancestors must have been born on the Scottish Muirs, for there is heather in me, and tincture of bog juices oozing through all my veins. John Muir was a child of Scotland, and in this narrative concert, composer Ed Willett uses the conservationist's own words to tell his story. The writings of Muir are performed by an actor who is part of our troupe. We decided to to do it in a chronological setting. We start off in his early days in Scotland. After I was five or six years old, living in Dunbar, Scotland, I ran away to the seashore or fields every Saturday. Oh, the blessed enchantment of those Saturday runaways in the prime of spring. Those were my first excursions, the beginnings of lifelong wanderings. Actor Tom Mitchell plays Muir and doubles on percussion, along with Lethal Wilson on violin, Cheryl Lear, who sings and writes some of the lyrics, and Willett on the cello. After John Muir's early days wandering the Scottish moors, the action and the family move to Wisconsin when they emigrate. America! We settled in the Wisconsin wilderness a few miles from Portage, in a sunny woods overlooking a pond which father named Fountain Lake. Father put me to the plow at the age of 12, when my head reached but little above the handles. For many years, I had to do the greater part of the plowing. 
But the back-breaking work on the farm wasn't enough to keep young John Muir down. From his earliest days, he was also a tinkerer who liked to know how things worked and tried to invent something better. They were inventions like clocks and uh, one alarm clock that was rigged up to a device that would raise the top half of his bed so it kind of threw him out of bed, if you can imagine that. He had always had that kind of a mind. It started very young for him. In fact, he would get into a great deal of trouble uh, with his father when he was eight years old because he was working on his inventions all the time, and that wasn't something that his father thought was a good use of his time. So he finally got his father to agree to uh, let him start his day whenever he wanted. So instead of getting up at 5 o'clock to start working, he would get up at 2 o'clock in the morning, 1 o'clock in the morning, and go down in the cold basement and work on these inventions. This creativity paid off for Muir. It was the door to formal education. Though, as he writes in his autobiography, The Story of My Boyhood and Youth, which is the source of the words Willitsetz, formal education wasn't enough. I was told by neighbors I should take my inventions to the state fair in Madison. There it was considered wonderful that a boy on a farm had been able to invent and make such things. These inventions opened all doors to me, including Wisconsin University, where I studied for four years before wandering off on a glorious botanical and geological excursion, leaving one university for another, the University of the Wilderness. John Muir, University of the Wilderness, is the title of this work, and Muir's upbringing prepared him for that education, says Willett. His father was a taskmaster and disciplinarian, and apparently Muir regularly saw the other end of a belt for little provocation. It was so rough, but it seemed like it possibly had a lot to do with why he ended up seeking a sanctuary in nature and why he was able to be so resilient to being in the mountains for three weeks and all the things he did, walk a thousand miles as he did in, in the United States. I began by walking to the Gulf of Mexico, a thousand miles more or less, then decided to visit California and see its famous Yosemite Valley. As I arrived on the steamer in San Francisco, a man on the wharf asked where I was bound. Anywhere that is wild. I set out again afoot and soon came to the great central valley like a flowered lake of pure sunshine. From its eastern boundary rose the mighty Sierra. So radiant, it seemed not clothed in light, but wholly composed of it. I was a new creature, born again, and truly, until this time, was I fairly conscious that I was born at all. That experience in California was a revelation for Muir. He'd been observing the natural world and meticulously noting its every detail since his childhood in Wisconsin. Our beautiful lake, named Fountain Lake by father, but Muir's Lake by the neighbors, is one of the many small glacier lakes that adorn the Wisconsin landscapes. It is fed by 20 or 30 meadow springs, about a half mile long, half as wide, and surrounded by low, finely modeled hills dotted with oak and hickory, and meadows full of grasses and sedges and many beautiful orchids and ferns. 
Ed Willett grew up near the Muir homestead in Wisconsin. He says he and Cheryl Lear combed through dozens of Muir's books and articles to find just the right inspiration for their original music and lyrics. We decided that we wanted to have our program be more of a philosophical landscape than a historical one. Most of it is, is sort of trying to get into his emotion again, trying to get an insight into what makes a person be so passionate and be such an um, inspirer of others. His writings inspired Willett and Leah to write Roses in the Hollow, a picture of Muir immersed in the profusion of life and its early summer flowers. Roses in the Hollow is one of the middle movements. The roses are just an archetype and... Uh, it's a picture of, of life that we see often uh, in the springtime and in the early summer. I tried to put into the music the myriad of directions that life is going at the same time. But this musical piece doesn't just show Muir reveling in the lushness and bounty of summer, it captures his other qualities as well. One of the things that fascinates me about him is his adventurer spirit. Um, we think about him writing in a, at a writer's desk often because that's what we see of him, but he was a, an amazing risk-taker. He was a mountaineer. And in fact, there's a, a piece based on the writings that he wrote uh, about an experience on Mount Shasta in the western United States where he was trapped on a mountain uh, overnight and and near death and ended up staying warm enough on uh, some hot fumaroles, they're called hissing fumaroles, the, the warm air that comes up from volcanic depths. And so he and his partner spent the whole night um, trying to survive this storm, and they barely did. And um, at the end of that adventure, um, we have a piece, actually, that's sort of his homecoming, this, when he gets to the end of that adventure and they're stumbling down the mountain and they get back to camp, this piece called Night Step Softly comes in. And to me, it just represents the relief that someone gets when they've done something amazing and just cheated death again and then they get to sleep. Sleep now, angel, let this day be through. Let all but what you've gained from love fall and fade from view. And I'll steadfast be watching over you. Sleep now, angel, sleep. You obviously have a tremendous fondness for Muir as a character, as, a, as an icon. Yeah, I do. I, I guess it's pretty deep with me because just the other day I, I dug up some writings of my own father, who was a naturalist and patterned a lot of his life after Muir's. He was an environmentalist, and uh, the parallels between my father's writing and Muir's were just arresting. I, I um, hadn't really noticed it quite as much, but I was digging through some old writings of his. But So I think it goes right from the, from the ground up for me, for sure.
and the music in John Muir University of the Wilderness is not just about the man, but also the writing that speaks so directly and intensely and the life dedicated to keeping wild and beautiful places pristine and protected for everybody. For Living on Earth, I'm Helen Palmer. From Wisconsin to Ohio now for another installment in the occasional Living on Earth Orion magazine series, The Place Where You Live. Orion invites readers to submit essays to the magazine's website and put their homes on a map, and we give some of them a voice. My name is Ann Kelsey. I live in St. Louis, Missouri. I wrote my essay about our family place in East Clarendon, Ohio. We've had it for almost 100 years. My grandfather bought it a long time ago, and it was used as a summer place until my parents built a house on it. We've had a lot of family events there, you know, weddings, birthdays, anniversaries. My father died there. It's wooded. It's got a large pond, about 35-acre pond in it, and a lot of wildlife. And then about mm, 15, 20 years ago, maybe, I got this tiny little kayak, and I started going out on the water. It's quite magical, and, and some of the residents of the pond are probably as old as I am. There's some huge snapping turtles that uh, they're quite scary when they go underneath the kayak. They look like dinosaurs. In my kayak, I learned how to be extremely silent. It's really become a form of prayer where I'm just aware of the fullness and beauty of creation. This is my essay about East Clarendon, Ohio. The night sky softens to a deep, calm gray before the first blush of dawn turns robust and the moon fades to a transparency. From the branches of a hemlock, a black-capped chickadee drops two clear descending notes, as confident as the first violin of an orchestra. A wood thrush sends out a flute-like whistle. A cardinal and then a robin follow. Then the air is filled with an assortment of cheeps, trills, chirps, clacks, Phillips screeches, twitters, and whistles. Even to an untrained ear unable to match the call to the bird, they sound different one from another. Each note encourages another, and one by one, the winged residents of pond and woodland take up an invitation to sing a lively morning cantata. Cow lilies raise sturdy fists of yellow buds above the water. A small flock of Canada geese takes to the air, rising hard and fast, calling furiously to each other above the rounded contours of the pond, where an old snapping turtle rests in the mud. Water spills over an old brick dam and provides background music, always changing its tune. On the hottest days of August, after weeks without rain, it becomes a whisper. A beaver swims from its humped, muddy house in search of new green leaves. A raccoon picks her way along the shore, 
in the deep shadows of pine and beech. As the light brightens and the air warms, a couple of turtles line up on a fallen log. Pink and white water lilies begin to open. Another morning comes to Blue Heron Farm. It isn't really a farm at all. It's family land we've hung on to for almost a hundred years. And now the only harvests are memories and love of the land. As miles go, I live far away. But at night when I can't sleep, I imagine waking up to the sight of a blue heron gliding across the pond and boarding birdsong. In my heart and imagination, this is my real home. As I said, my grandfather bought it, and now it's part of my mother's estate. And there I have four younger sisters, so there are five of us with all kinds of different financial needs and emotional attachments to the place. And uh, so, unless I win the lottery, <laughs> we, we, do have to, uh, we do have to sell it. It will be a, a, a huge grief when it finally passes from our hands, although we don't own the land. We are just stewards of the land. We are caretakers, and so I just hope that it will pass on to someone who understands land in the same way. That's Ann Kelsey, her essay about her holiday home in Ohio. And you can tell us about the place where you live, if you like. There's more about Orion Magazine and how to submit your essay at LOE.org. Next time on Living on Earth, the quest to save the Saola, a species so rare and remarkable, they call it the Asian unicorn. When the Saola stands profile, the two horns in perspective merge into one, and it appears to be a unicorn. This unicorn's not mythical, but it could be gone before science can catch up with it. That's next time on Living on Earth. On Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskin, Emmett Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Shannon Kelleher, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, James Kerwood, and Jennifer Marquis. Our show was engineered by Tom Tiger with help from Jake Rigo, Noel Flat, John Gesso, and Jeff Wade. Allison Lirish Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. www.stonyfield.com PRI Public Radio International